Welcome to All About Literacy. Today, we've invited Dr. Mark Conley to this podcast episode to speak with us about adolescent literacy and his work over the years in the field. Mark's work has included research, teaching at the undergraduate and graduate levels, and publishing many articles and books. Most recently, before his retirement, he was a professor of instruction and curriculum leadership at the University of Memphis, where he started the Memphis Literacy Corps. Before this, he was a professor at Michigan State University. Mark's academic interests include teacher education policy and practice, adolescent literacy, assessment, and human and artificial intelligence tutoring, all within interdisciplinary contexts and urban, and urban education. Throughout his academic career, Mark has made it a priority to support teachers and help carry teachers' stories in ways that elevate and empower them. Mark's outside of academia interests are equally fascinating and interesting. He builds guitars, has been a recipe taster for Zingerman's, a favorite of mine, and was a flight instructor. What connects these varied experiences is that Mark often intentionally puts himself in the place of a learner and has said that this directly informs his work as a teacher educator. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. So for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to take turns asking you some questions. How does this sound? Sounds good. Awesome. So let's start. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what sparked your passion for adolescent literacy? I wanted to start by saying that I'm a child of a blue collar worker. Albert, my father, was a machinist for Eastman Kodak. And so that gave me a real reverence for people that work with their hands. And to his surprise, I became an English teacher. Actually, as an English major, and some of your students may resonate with this, my dad asked me at one point, How are you going to make a living with that? So I became a teacher, and I was a, a teacher in Dundee, New York, in upstate New York, in the Finger Lakes, and taught for three years, and then went to uh, Syracuse University to get my doctorate in reading. Actually, along the way, I became a reading teacher, and I realized I didn't have a whole lot of training. And to begin to get the training, then that's when I pursued an advanced degree. So that was back in uh, 1980, many years ago. And I was 26 years old. I got my doctorate when I was 29. I realized in retrospect, that was way too young. And by the time I was 30, I had my first job as an assistant professor at the University of Alaska at Anchorage. And by October of that year, I, I drove up the Alaska Highway in August. By October of that year, I was working on a staff development project up in Kotzebue, Alaska, which is 70 miles north of the Arctic Circle having never been west of Buffalo, New York. So I, my career was characterized, especially in the early stages, with finding myself in surprising situations that I did not understand well. They had only had schools in the Arctic in Alaska for several years before I got there. And so it was like dropping into the Wild West. They were importing teachers from the lower 48. They were really trying to figure out what kind of curriculum they should have. They ended up importing a lot of stuff from the lower 48. I saw kids in classrooms that were reading about cattle drives in Nebraska, having never seen it. So just all these amazing kind of cultural uh, contrasts. And it colored the whole rest of my career because I started to understand that everything was about culture and about cultural transitions. And this is back in the 80s before a lot of people were even talking about that stuff. But it served me really well because I spent a good 30 years working in urban schools and it took me a little while to realize that my early experiences basically falling on my butt, trying to work my way through circumstances I did not understand well, 
taught me to shut my mouth and, and then to act according to <clears throat> what other people saw as important rather than just what I saw, thought was important. So that, that kind of, in a nutshell, that's what my life was like. Mark, fascinating. I didn't know about Alaska and I love how you have been able to learn from and draw on your different experiences over the years to inform and to shape the way that you approach new experiences. And this leads a little bit into the next question. As someone who's been in the field of content area literacy, adolescent literacy, reading instruction for many years, and you mentioned this already a little bit, the comment that this is before people were talking about culture, perhaps in a more direct or foregrounded way. How have you seen the field change and develop? When I started, my mentor was actually the inventor of content area reading. Harold Herbert. He invented it back in the 1960s at a time when they were trying to train massive numbers of teachers. It was really focused on just the instructional side of things. He did it at a time when there wasn't a whole lot of work being done to help the subject areas. There wasn't a whole lot of research in the early 60s on mathematics and science instruction, for example. So he came up with this idea of how to teach reading at the same time that you teach those things. And what I realized over the years was that what he had created were a bunch of lesson plan structures that worked well in those areas. Interestingly, even though he claimed it, they didn't really teach reading. (laughs) And they did a really good job in terms of expanding the classroom with conversation and talk among the kids in particular and the teachers. And it made it much more of a uh, student-centered environment, but it wasn't teaching. And he'd probably come down from heaven, beat me up for saying that, but that's kind of what, that's looking back. He could never prove that it was making anybody a better reader. And then over time, what started to happen is the people in academic circles started changing things. So the first, one of the first changes, instead of calling it content area reading, they called it content area literacy. Everybody thought that was a big change. And then they went along and said, well, geez, it's really ignoring the kids. So maybe we should call it adolescent literacy. And so the academics changed it to adolescent literacy. And it goes on and on. That what I always found interesting was that while the academic relabeling things in the schools, they were dealing with the same sorts of issues that I had dealt with when I was a teacher. Those never go away. And the kids are the same kids. So there's poverty. The first kids that I ever worked with were from Appalachia. And the poverty and the broken families and all that kind of stuff is still there. And the need is still there. We, your students will find that people will come up with all sorts of labels and all sorts of ways of talking about things. But it's really important to step back and just say, really, what's different? The one thing I'd watch your students to think about is I learned over the years that every single kid staring back at you wants something in their life that's special to them. And our job as teachers is to help them on that journey. The more we get tied up in trying to categorize stuff and label stuff, the more we forget that. So that's really guided my work over the years. I love that. Even just your description, then the title of the textbook you publish is should be no surprise to anyone in that it's titled Continuary Literacy Learners in Context. So you're foregrounding exactly what you've been talking about here. Can you talk a little bit about that book and why the focus you did and and how you express that in the book? I'm going to have to get a little bit humble here because um, the last version of that book, I said to myself, this is an anthropological work. And the reason I said that was one of my goals was to try to capture all of the different sorts of lesson planning that people had done over the many years that they had content area literacy around. But 
I also started to realize the limitations and that the best expert teachers that I ran into didn't, re- didn't get their lessons from a textbook. They looked at the situation, they figured out what was needed, and they often created something that was quite inventive and quite different and quite creative that met the needs of the kids. And the frustration I had over the years was that the more you focus on a model lesson plan or a model textbook or something like that, the less you remembered the important thing is that child. So I finished the last edition of that book and said, okay, that's it, no more. And it was that I, I had a little bit of a schizophrenia in academia. I know I was supposed to write those things and I have that would t- take up the ideas and do different things with it. But the most important thing to me was impact on people's lives. And the best way I could do that was quite often face-to-face. And it, it, so that's what became important to me. So Mark, as we think about the impact that teachers have on students' lives, adolescents in particular, because that's the focus of the conversation today, um, you've talked about teachers being what we call a vital literacy resource, and you've argued that um, we would make great strides nationally, and with uh, not only with the literacy achievement, if we actually treated teachers as a vital literacy resource. What does that look like, and what examples have you seen where when teachers have been treated that way, what has happened? Let me start with the U.S. context, and then I can talk internationally. Over the course of my career, which spanned 35 years, I could walk into a school building, and there would be somebody or a set of somebodies there that were literally knocking it out of the park with their students. And I would often gravitate toward them because I wanted to see it. I wanted to watch them. And inevitably, I'd, I'd see them doing something that I had never seen. And you could tell that it was effective. You could tell it was affected by the the kind of performance that the kids were doing, but also the relationship between the teachers and the kids. That persisted through my whole career. The irony of it was that outside the building, people didn't know that they were. And I I have a a good friend here, John Barker, who's the assistant superintendent of instruction. I met with them in January, he he and his uh, leadership team. And I said, one of the first things you guys need to do is to figure out who the best teachers in the system are and identify them, locate them, and then start to use them. And what I mean by starting to use them, even the universities have been remiss in this. Find these people to train the new teachers. These people have valuable information and valuable insights. The thing that they're often not aware of the expert teachers is how to bring a new person along, but you can teach somebody that. But they have knowledge about how to work with kids that the newbies, the new kids really need to know. But the other thing is that those teachers can be mentors throughout the system. They can help colleagues. They can, if if the system wants to implement new practices, they can give good feedback. They could help translate things. I watched here in Memphis when they brought in this ungodly difficult computer program to diagnose kids and reading. I was in a building where a teacher named Monica Ayers, a reading teacher with 30 years experience, looked at the program and she goes, and she said, we already do that. We just do it in our heads. So she could interpret that program. A week later, she's setting up lessons for the other teachers in the building. That's the kind of stuff that needs to happen a whole lot more. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen. And we're in a period now where people are downplaying teacher expertise. It's really the worst thing that, that we could do because we have a whole lot of experts across the entire country within any system. And they're just an unused resource. Now, where I learned this from was when I flew airplanes, 
you got to teach other people because you were really good at flying airplanes. And then I would work, ride back to my office at Michigan State and I would say, I'm not a professor of education because I'm necessarily a good teacher. I get to be a professor of education because I write a lot of stuff. And it started posing a problem for me about how we do things in the education sector. Same thing in terms of my guitar building. I went and studied with a 30-year veteran guitar builder to learn how to build guitars. That's the way true professions are really grounded. And we don't do that enough in teacher education. Now, the exception is, this is the international scene, if you go to the top performing countries in terms of mathematics and literacy from the PISA tests, those countries use their teachers as resources. And I saw that in Singapore, multiple levels of mentoring, the way that they recognize master teachers. And they don't do it, we, the way we do it here is we do it according to people's participation in activities. We don't necessarily do it, this is what I meant in my email the other day, we don't do it by recognizing people's proven success. And we have a really hard time with that because we try to be really egalitarian on the union level and the school buildings. But the thing is, never, and this is the dirty little secret, everybody knows somebody down the hall is doing something really cool. And yet we don't provide opportunities to go see that or go learn from that. The other countries will enshrine people's success, nurture people's success, define people's success, and they use that to energize the whole system. That We need to do a whole lot more of that here. As you talk about teacher expertise, it wants it leads to this question that I want our listeners to hear from you your response to it a lot of beginning teachers are listening to this podcast episode Mark what advice do you have as you think about and um, how do they find these teacher experts or how do they start on the path to becoming a teacher expert what advice do you have for them in this it's it's very subjective and it kind of needs to be the way our system is organized but I I, when you and I are working together Deborah the uh, thing I, I would still tell the students is find the teachers in your building who are smiling, who are energetic, who are trying to do the best they can. You can tell that there's expertise going on there <clears throat> just by watching. It, it wouldn't take me very long over the years to walk into a building. I could find them without too much trouble. People are talking about them. Kids are talking about them. And then what you need to do is when you find that person or persons, spend some time with them. Learn everything you can, and you'll inevitably find that they have stories about uh, successes and failures. They talk about learning all the time, those kinds of things. It's the same thing that I found in, in aviation. It's the same thing I find in guitar building. You learn from your mistakes, but you learn from others, and that's how you get good, and you practice all the time. There, there are some real common elements across all the professions in terms of how that works. The thing that's really energizing for the older teachers, sometimes the younger teachers are, are scared to go up to an older teacher, but what you do if you go ask an older teacher about what they know and you, and you really respect what they're doing, you're helping them unpack what they know and they actually gain a, a greater appreciation for what they know. And it's actually fairly pleasurable to them. Might not be at first, but over time, you're really helping them appreciate their own professionalism. So this leads us into our last question, which is a bit of a fun one. You've talked about building guitars and you've talked about uh, flying and you're welcome to elaborate on either of those or a different example. But in our literacy courses, we talk about the importance of acknowledging, affirming, and drawing on students out of literacy school practices or their multiple literacies. And so what's one out of school literacy practice that you enjoy? 
currently, I spend a lot of time baking and, and cooking. My wife does not like to cook. And there was a day this week I wore myself out because I started the morning by baking uh, Zingerman's Farm, which is a sourdough bread. Moved into, uh, I made 64 wontons. And the wontons I made with a new gadget I've got for my KitchenAid, which is a, a meat grinder. So I took two chicken breasts for the very first, semi-froze them, and then ran them through the meat grinder, spiced them up, and then made the wontons out of them. What really gets me is that when I am engaged in those kinds of activities, I am usually looking at uh, a recipe book or something online. I don't go find a worksheet. And unfortunately, the history of content area literacy has been that you need a worksheet as an intermediary. But when I'm building a guitar and I'm having a problem, or I'm baking bread and I'm having a problem, I don't go to a worksheet, I go to a source. And so it's really taught me, if you take a look at a 12-year-old child right now and you say, what skills are they going to need? They're going to need to be able to figure out what's the problem that they're trying to solve. And then how are they going to amass resources and sort through the resources to be able to help them solve that problem? That is a key life skill. And literacy is right at the heart, but it's not usually the way that we teach it in schools. So that's the interesting thing to me. I think a lot of what we do in school is very artificial, does not map out very well in terms of skills and life, what we do. And if I had my druthers, I would change school to, to really prepare people for the way that adults live their lives. So that, that's what a lot of that's taught me. Mark, I love hearing those examples and something that Erica and I try to do in our classes is to help our beginning teachers realize all the sophisticated and rich literacy practices our students are engaging in outside of school that often aren't acknowledged or um, recognized or affirmed or made space in. And because we, we place them in these inauthentic schoolified versions of what it, what it means to be and act in the world and um, love everything <laughs> how you're saying is that oftentimes we need to look outside of school context in order to remind us what it is that should inform our thinking and our work around the around this stuff the other piece of that too is the is the teacher education students themselves i always found it fascinating all the range of activities all my michiganders were involved in and they didn't feel like that mattered. and i would often think no you've got to share that with your students because it, it shows them that a full life is more than just what happens in the schoolroom. And you can take all of those things that are part of your full life and really apply it to where you want to be. That to me is, that's, that's adult literacy. I love that. I love that phrase, Mark, a full life. And you are such a fascinating and interesting person who lives a very full life. And I'm so <laughs> grateful for this conversation and for this time that we get to spend with you and to meet you. My wife says I don't get a bucket list. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode. For those of you listening in, thanks also for joining us. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming um, episodes. We are Deb Van Dynan and Erica Hamilton wishing you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy. <laughs>